Hi, I'm Father Michael Denk of the Prodigal Father, and I'm here with Father Michael McCandless, the Vocation Director of the Seminary of the Diocese of Cleveland. Welcome, Father Michael. Thank you, Father Michael. Glad to be here with you. Well, we're continuing on our series of interviews of Praying with Priests, and I'm really excited to do, the, do this with Father Mike because he is the Vocation Director of our Diocese, and he helps a lot of guys discern their call to the priesthood, and he does a lot of this by helping them really move to the interior life and, and pray. So, Father Mike, I just want to begin by asking you, what was your first memory or first memories of prayer? When I was a child, and this is after my mom and dad divorced, my stepdad had recently come into my life. And he began the habit of walking me up to my bedroom to go to bed. And when he did that, he would kneel down next to my bed with me. And he taught me uh, from the very beginning, I think, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, and then the prayer to one's guardian angel. But before we did that, we said an act of contrition. And we said those five prayers every single night. I would say probably a majority of nights, a good majority of nights. And we would say those together, and he would teach me wherever I was, and he would fill the words in for me. And He was the one that after being around him, I actually could say prayers on my own. Now, what was interesting too is, is that when I was very young, probably about four, I moved to Mississippi. So I was away from literally everybody else that was around me. I was away from my grandparents who I had lived with. And I'll get back to that too, because there's a memory there from, from earlier childhood, a really good memory. Um, we moved to Mississippi. We belonged to Annunciation Parish, and I wasn't old enough for kindergarten, but I remember going to Annunciation Parish um, just outside of Columbus, Mississippi, uh, every Sunday. I can still picture the inside of the church. In that church, I remembered uh, from when I was very young. And um, I remembered my parents going up for communion, and I, being not old enough yet, you know, didn't go. And um, what did that feel like? It was interesting because, because my mom would always, my mom and dad would always, you know, we'd get up from kneeling and I would stay kneeling and they would go to receive communion. And it was interesting. I think one of the first times that ever happened, my mom looked at me and I kind of like thought they were, they were like going somewhere far away. <laughs> you know, I'm not even sure what was going on, you know, but I thought that they were going somewhere far away, but I, I knew they would be back. I didn't know if it was going to be days or hours or, and it was like a minute, right? But, you know, mom looked at me and she goes, I'll be right back, honey. And then, you know, she went back. And, and whenever she got back in the pew, she would always kind of touch my face. Mom would. Um, and that was always one of the best moments for her, is when she got back into the pew after she had received communion. Mm. She um, she was always smiling. 
she was always devout. Her and my stepdad receiving communion was one of the first experiences of God, church, and prayer, and communion. So I guess in some respects, I saw what Eucharist did for them without ever really ever knowing what Eucharist was about when I was young. Um, my stepdad's prayer with me was very key because eventually he knew that I would do that on my own. And so he, you know, eventually as I got older, five and six and seven years old, he did not necessarily kneel next to me by my bedside. But, but that was key because he, I think that he kind of knew and I think he would even ask from time to time if I was saying those prayers. My grandfather on my mom's side was also a really key figure. And, and this is interesting because he, um, <clears throat> he was instrumental in my priestly vocation in many ways too. But my, my grandpa would take me to church on Sunday mornings sometimes. And uh, mom would too. Um, this is before my mom and my stepdad met. So I guess this is probably even before. This is like, you know, probably three years old or something like that, you know. And um, he would take me to church and I would sit with him, and I think my mom too. But we lived like a quarter of a mile. My grandparents lived a quarter of a mile from Holy Family in Stowe. So we would walk or we would drive down. That was probably my earliest experience of church and of liturgical prayer. My stepdad working with me and being with me and teaching me, helping me to memorize so it was internalized, those prayers, that was really key. And um, and then my, my parish church of Annunciation down in uh, Columbus, Mississippi. All those were key. All those were key moments. A hot topic that is often brought up by people is taking their kids to church, you know, and they, they wonder sure. if they should take their kids to church, if they're going to be loud, if they're going to, you know, be tortured by being there. What, what did it feel like for you to go to church? I, I always liked church when I was a kid. Now, I think, I think there's a difference between... There's a difference between, okay, I'm temporarily not entertained. So there's there's the pain or the slight suffering of not being entertained. Or that might come because I would like to know more of what's going on, but I can't necessarily see into it at, at the level that I would like to or could later on in life. But when I was younger, I always liked church. I liked dressing up. I liked going with mom and dad. I liked the beauty that was around me. Um, although you probably could argue that Holy Family in Stowe is not a really beautiful church. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's home, you know, it's home to me. Uh, it still is, you know, it's still home. You can find beauty in every church, I think Father At, Mike is you, trying to you, say. <laughs> yeah, you can. You can. You can find beauty in every church. You know, what's interesting about that, though, is I work with kids who are in 7th and 8th grade, sometimes 6th grade, when they'll come to visit the seminary. And um, I receive thank you letters from them. And we're talking probably, you know, people who are six, seven years older than what I was when I was, you know, from these memories I'm talking about, maybe seven or eight years. And I look at their notes, and sometimes their notes are developed in such a way that they know what's going on when they come to visit the seminary and when they go to Mass with the seminarians. They know what's happening, you know, and it obviously is not, you know, just a year of going to church that's helped them be, to become that reflective, but... They're grateful that they've been able to sing like that, to pray like that, um, to have the experiences of hearing about God's plans for them. So I think, you know, prayer in church early on has got to be, it's an important thing that many things are happening within the child's mind and heart, 
but it may be below the surface. So what did it feel like for you to go to church as a child? What, what kind of feelings did that e- evoke? Was it boredom? Was it awe? Was it a mixture? What did you feel like? There were times of boredom. I, I soaked in a lot of things at church, and I didn't realize it when it was happening. So one of the times that I came back, it was a Sunday afternoon, I think, um, I was with my mom and my stepdad in the kitchen, and I was getting a drink of water. I used to climb up on top of the countertop and get a cup, a plastic red Tupperware cup. I remember exactly what I used. And I filled this cup with water, and as I was drinking from it, I elevated it, and I began to say, then he took the, the, then he took the cup. It wasn't the mm-hmm. chalice at that time, right? It was the old sacramentary translation. Then he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks and praise. And giving the cup to all of his disciples, he said, and then I just kind of racked off that portion of the Eucharistic prayer. How old do you think you were? I think I was about four. Okay. And um, my, my mom and my stepdad just kind of looked at me, you know, with kind of uh, just kind of mystified looks at me, you know, like, like, did that just happen? Like, what do you, wow, okay. You know? <laughs> I, I suppose he's soaking up something in mass, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, they, they laughed, they chuckled after that. And I guess I chuckled too. Um, did I, did I experience boredom at Mass? Yes. Did I soak things in? Yes. Did I want communion? Yes. I wanted to walk in line. I wanted to go with my parents. I... Do you remember your first communion? Yes, I do. Tell us about it. Holy Family in Stowe, second grade. And, um, I was, uh... Right behind a, a young man named Ralphie, who was the same class as me. His family was friends with my family. And um, I wore a, uh, a white blazer, uh, kind of like an off-white blazer. I remember exactly what I was wearing. And um, it was an interesting day. My mom put a scapular on me earlier in the day and said, I'd like you to wear this, and it's good for you to wear. And I remember getting a rosary from my aunt and my uncle. And I got, my, I got a really important gift, actually, which was, I'm glad that you asked that because it took me back to a memory of my prayer, which is uh, my first book of the saints by Father John Lovasik. I think mm. he was a SVD father. And, um, but going back to the day of, I remember us walking out. We sat by ourselves, you know, all the communicants. And we um, sat, and, and I received, I think, with my parents, um, and we had, we had tasted, Father, uh, Father Dave was one of the uh, uh, vicars of the parish. We had tasted the hosts ahead of time, non-consecrated, so I knew what I was getting into. And uh, I knew what it would taste like. I knew what the, what, you know, the, what the wine would taste like, too. And, and um, I just remember being very, very joyful. We celebrated. You know, we had a big meal as a family. Everyone came over to the house in Stowe. They were pleased with what was going on. I was pleased with what was going on. Of course, there's this newness of receiving communion. And then there's this, not a bad, but an ordinariness of now going frequently. Mm-hmm. And that, that of course came too. Yeah, the reception of communion has had different 
impacts, levels of impact in my life. And a lot of it is dependent on, you know, candidly, a lot of it's dependent on sin. Mm. A lot of it is dependent on anxiety, distress, getting out of the earthly assignments and projects, just just wanting everything else to stop, you know, so I can have and be with. It's more of a... Do you find it not stopping when you receive communion or stopping or what, what happens in those moments? Everything else just goes to second or third or tenth place. Mm-hmm. You know. And that's what I hope for. That's what I've wanted. And I think when I was younger, I don't think that that, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't live in a way where my life was reflective over you know, Lex Vivendi. Mm-hmm. You know, what so, is Lex Vivendi so, for a so, listener that doesn't so, know? So yeah, so Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi is the 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 law of prayer is the law of the of belief, or the law of the church, the belief of the church, and it's a liturgical saying that we use that prioritizes how we pray is oftentimes the foundation of what we believe. So just to review for our listeners, yeah. Lex yeah. Orandi is is the law of prayer. The law of prayer, how we pray. And Lex yeah. Credendi is... The law of belief. The law of belief, or yeah. what, what belief becomes comes of right. prayer. And Lex, and Vivendi, Lex Vivendi would be... Is the daily living out. How we live it out. Exactly. Okay, good. And I didn't have that reflection when I was in grade school or early high school of, mm-hmm. you know, Lex Vivendi. Like, what I'm doing is actually going to impact how I'm going to live. But now, there's just no separation between that. I mean, it's, it's impossible to receive communion to can celebrate or to celebrate Mass and to receive communion and to not have it be immediately connected to mm. what am I doing? What's on my schedule? Who do I have to see? What am I struggling with? What kind of anxieties am I going through right now? Who am I supposed to pray for again, you know, intentionally at this Mass? Who, who has just recently asked me for prayers in the last two hours? So now you know, it's become connected with your life. Every, everything, everything can be... Everything can be presented to God and can be remembered and touched. Everything that I need touched, everything that people had asked me to bring to God, Mm. communion is the time where it all comes together. It all comes together. You know, confession is so key in my life because it's the time when I believe I'm, I'm, I'm the right kind of vessel again. But in the midst of being the right kind of vessel and receiving communion, it's not as if all the, all the imperfections of the world are wiped away. It's just this is, the, this is God coming and arriving now. And I cannot game, work, fabricate, try to make happen, deprive myself of sleep and work harder. I can't do anything in my own power to ask, beg, to have things more together or complete in that moment than they are mm-hmm. in that moment. And so communion is the moment of completion. Now you mentioned confession too, and a lot of people, there's a lot of Catholics that are um, either turned off by confession or afraid of confession. Yeah. Just because I know you, I know that you have uh, different, you uh, maybe a, a more deep and profound experience of that. Tell us about confession in terms of actually encountering God, how you encounter God 
through confession and how that's a type of prayer for you. Yeah. This is, um, wow, in the midst of thinking about this, this is really connected to Scripture. So a few of the moments that are coming to mind are when the woman who is caught in adultery hears from Jesus, has anyone condemned you? Nor do I condemn you. Go and do not sin anymore. Mm -hmm. Peter. So John 21, Peter's confession, and I mean, this is, this is a watershed moment of my life. You know, I am Peter. When I look at the apostles, when I look at the saints, I am Peter. Um, Meaning what? Oh, there's just so much there. Um, what I'm on, I'm on. What I'm off, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm off, you know? Um, uh, in short, to keep that brief, I see myself reacting and responding the same way that Peter reacts and responds. Which is? I think that if Jesus would have said, I'm going to go hand myself over, I would have said, we can find another way around this. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And in the end, I probably would have said in some way, you know, damn it, I'm going to go to Rome. You know, this this needs to happen. Um, Talk about the experience, though, of that going to confession. Yeah, yeah. And so when I sin, I'm helpless. I mean, sin is, sin is a trap. And, you know, imagine yourself getting caught in a trap. When we're caught in a trap, we don't have the same level of bodily and mental and emotional functions. You know, a limb is caught or our mind is going berserk. Um, we're literally in darkness or um, we feel overpowered or outwitted. And, you know, so I can't think my way out of my sin. Hmm. I cannot escape the fact that I've sinned. And practically, you know, getting trapped and caught and outwitted by Satan begins to dull you a bit for the next temptation. So confession is an interruption. Confession is confession is the, the cleaning up. But it's all the wheels have totally fallen off, or at least partially fallen off. And I cannot return myself back to being the conduit and the receptor of God's grace that I was. And I want to be, because we, we taste the sweetness of being close to God oftentimes when we're far away from it. Because we're remembering it. And confession is the cleaning, it's the repairing, it's the setting me up again, pointing me in the right direction. And it also has this little bit of a slap to it where it's like, okay, Mike, this could be a moment where you're just trying to be relieved of the fact that you know you did something wrong, right? And the angst that comes from doing something wrong. But 
confession is much more so now because I think of the transformation of my heart. You know, confession for me now is, Michael, let's... Let's travel for a long time by a new road. And it seems like it's a freeing of you. You know, you, so oh, you talk yeah. about sin being yeah. the prison. I think that confession for you is probably that unlocking and it releasing is. of... It is. You know, God needs to come touch what I've done wrong. You know, I need God in the midst, looking at, seeing, however tough that is to think about, though, you know, because of the sins we commit. But, you know, I want God to see... To, to touch, to heal, and to not leave anything behind. I want him to touch it all, you know, and to just set me free. Freedom has been a really big theme. And one really quick thing about that. When I was on my diaconate retreat in Mournersville, Pennsylvania, I had what I would call a mystical experience. And it is one of probably two mystical experiences that I believe that I've had. But this was, although it wasn't audible, it was just like a lightning rod, right to my heart, to my mind, to my whole person. Nobody else was around. I was walking around the back part of the uh, Jesuit retreat house in Warnersville, Pennsylvania. I was um, in one of my holy hours, and God simply said, Michael, put all of these sins behind you, and let's get this party started. That's what you heard from God. That's exactly what I heard from God. Michael, put all these sins behind you and let's get this party started. And that has actually come true so many times afterwards. It has been something I've returned to and it's been unlocked in a different angle frequently. And I can tell you about that later on. But, but in short, the, the gift of confession is the gift of ongoingly purging me yeah. from, what wants to t from what wants to take me over. And I think about, you know, so confession is a sacrament, and with all sacraments, we celebrate them. And, yeah. you know, that the phrase, let's get this party started, there's a celebration there. Oh, yeah, there has been. You know, so confession is not a dreadful experience, but it's an experience of celebration, of freedom, and of new life. I think that if people, I think that if people didn't protect their sins or be the sole owners of who can touch their sins, I think that people would find that God is surprisingly good at being God with sin. People <laughs> you, will ask, though, why can't I just go to God? Why do I have to go to a priest? Yeah, and, and this is, you know, it's a common question. And, and I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't think that even spending a lot of time is going to be ben more beneficial than spending a short amount of time on that. I look at it this way. Sin happens in time and space. Let God come into time and space to remedy those sins. Mm -hmm. So who, who is God's agent in time and space? You know, can we in our own souls and our own persons? We're trapped, right? You know, our minds are struggling. Our minds are, our, our hearts are struggling. We're not, we're, we cannot minister to ourselves once we've sinned. We can't minister to ourselves mm, ever. That's a great, yeah, we can't. We can't minister to ourselves in sin. We, we need someone else. Look at the common example of family counseling. Mm -hmm. You know, when something is happening wrong in the family, those two people don't wake up five years later with the capability of fixing that. Right. They need to have the conversation in time and space with the people who can aid them with that. Confession's the exact same thing. 
It's and more I than think counseling. people have well, I think people have a difficulty with counseling as well of of placing their trust in another person. Right. But there's right. something about the sacredness of, of priesthood and of the seal of confession, knowing that your sins are going to remain between you and the Father. Completely. You know, and I think that that allows for, I know for you, you just, you can be so candid, you know, and so vulnerable and so yourself mm -hmm. and feel safe. Yeah. Tom Tift in the seminary said that one of my greatest gifts was that I was dead honest mm. when I struggled. Mm -hmm. And that was a really, really good thing for me to hear. Because although it, it's always been kind of effortless, I've never told myself, okay, I really have to be honest this time. It just comes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really transparent. The lie, the lie that I think is becoming more and more popular obviously fed, you know, fed by Satan, is do not trust anybody. You cannot trust anybody. People are going to, they're out to win you over, they're out to hurt you, they're going to take advantage of you. And the greatest, one of the greatest Christian truths is, is that trust is inherent to any kind of growth. Mm -hmm. Trust me, trust my followers, trust the Holy Spirit who's your advocate, the counselor. We have to trust. You know, and why do we appoint presbyters or deacons or bishops in the early church or why do we have people take communion to the sick you know people need to have trust confession is all about trust can you think of one moment where you felt god's presence in confession oh yeah can you describe that for our listeners um, what that would feel like or be like yeah i was with bob mccreary one time on retreat i talked to him about forgiveness of sins previous sins even sins that i had been to confession for mm -hmm. but were still you know in my heart having some impact I was outside praying at Capuchin College and the rain came and it was, and I love the rain. And the rain came and it was gentle and I just put my hands and my head outside the terrace, which is on the second floor. And I just let God wash me. Mm -hmm. And he washed my head and he washed my hands And I was done being preoccupied with that previous sin right. in a profound way. Yeah, and I think with confession, we can't get rid of our own sins as much as that we think that we can. You know, I'll often deal with people that have held on to something forever. And yeah. it's not until they finally have brought it to confession and heard the words of absolution that they have finally been free from that. So I want to go back a little bit to your childhood and growing up and development of prayer. So you talked a lot about your childhood. What would be the next stage of you where your prayer life grew and who impacted that? When I was in seventh grade, I was serving mass most weekends, mostly because my family went to 7 a.m. mass and there weren't many other kids my age there. Uh, so I served mass almost every weekend. And I would say that my sense of liturgical prayer grew at that time. My familiarity with Mass, my being close to the, to the mysteries of Mass. There was something that happened. My, my love for Mass and liturgy 
happened around that time mm. in most fundamental ways. You know, holding the book for the priest, listening to what the priest would say. I loved serving the Easter Vigil. I loved the darkness, the light. I loved everything that went into that. So there was a liturgical sense that came. To, symbolism was very important to me at that time, at that day and age. Um, I learned about symbolism a little bit. Not near as much as I would later on, like in the seminary and things like that. But, um, but intrinsically you were learning. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Now there was a, a time at, um, at Archbishop Hoban High School when I was involved in campus ministry and peer counseling that I began to notice the power of intercessory prayer, petitionary prayer. What is that for people that might not know? Yeah, so intercessory prayer is when one is entrusted with an intention, which is a desire, which is a need, which is a particular begging of a member or a group of members in the church. And this person offers through their own prayer, through their own fasting, through their own works of mercy, um, an intention to God. That is to say, they take this intention and they lift it in heart, mind, action, soul to God, asking for a response on behalf of this other person or this group of people. So people will often say, you know, Father, can you pray for so-and-so? Bingo. That would be your intercessory That's prayer. That's intercessory You prayer. would take that prayer right. to God. Mike, I need a new job. You know, um, this person's really struggling with this friendship. This marriage is on the rocks. All these things. And now as a priest, I mean, it mm -hmm. happens, you know, all the time. like 17 times yeah. a day, right? So many that I can't remember all of them. But go back to that first time yeah. that intention became important. Yeah, so I really began to get into conversations of how to help and encourage and support people when they were struggling. That's a lot of what campus ministry was about back in that day and age. We were learning about listening to people in the midst of their problems and pointing them to the right people, you know, to get some support. But praying for them, praying with them. We would practice praying with people. We would practice listening to people. And uh, we became, I thought, very mindful of that. Mm -hmm. Mindful of the fact that there was brokenness, even in the lives of 15-year-old kids. Um, you know, I, and there's a big difference between 15 and 17. I mean, the problems of a 15-year-old and the problems of a 17-year-old could be the difference between, um, you know, my friend, you know, doesn't like me anymore to, you know, I think I'm pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's these moments of, of, of taking upon your own shoulders at least listening to these other people. So that was a, that was a key thing. The, the hurt of the church, but the community of the church became present to me um, in high school. Was there someone that taught you how to do that, or did you just wind up doing I, it? I, I think, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it is peers, I mm, thought, Mike. You learned from your peers, okay. You know, from, from older peers who really, I thought, had a, that they wanted to be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of it was, I don't know if I had a great mentor at that time for that particular kind of prayer or for that particular kind of ministry. Right. That would probably come later on. Well, let's talk about later on. Have there been any good mentors in your life mm. that have helped you grow in your prayer life? One of the first people that ever taught me how to pray with more fervor and giving me more understanding along the way was a guy that we were in seminary with, Steve Picorni. Mm. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Steve was so Coco. good, though. Um, Steve, you know, Steve was a year older than me, and he was already in the seminary. I began to play in a softball team with Steve and got to know him through some different church events. But, um, you know, Steve, Steve introduced me to the Blessed Mother. Mm. Steve introduced me 
to discipline mm-hmm. and prayer. Steve challenged me. I mean, at that point in time, I'm 18, 19 years old. Um, and I wasn't getting challenged with daily prayers, scriptural time with prayer or an encounter with scripture in my prayer, silence, um, praying a rosary, um, learning the chaplet, having time for um, intentional time to come close to our Lord. And he taught me a lot of that. And when I got into the seminary, numerous mentors came on the scene. But up to that point in time, Steve was one of the best mentors that I had. In fact, he still remains in some respects a mentor for me mm-hmm. because he is, he has the right blend of passion and he's fervent, he learns, um, and he's, and he, his excitement is, is more than mine, you know? So it's, it's one of those moments where here's a really yeah, passionate evident. person is teaching another very passionate mm-hmm. person. Um, it's almost like a spark, you know, his, his spark helps spark you. But what I, yes. what I want to highlight, and I think is so important to people in prayer life, is that discipline and accountability. So oftentimes we, we don't like those words, but the word disciple comes from discipline. Yeah. You know, that there, for us to have a real rich, deep prayer life, we do need uh, to have a discipline. So the catechism says that prayer doesn't just happen. We have to make the time for prayer. Mm-hmm. So we have to actually discipline ourselves. But then what I think is so wonderful is God provided you with some kind of accountability, a friend that would just check in with you and challenge you mm-hmm. to make sure that you are praying. So I think that that is a wonderful, it sounds like, growth in your prayer life. And, and it, it came through a brother seminarian, you mm-hmm. know, and he maybe didn't even know he was doing that. Mm-hmm. I think that you're right. I think that he just sought me and my growth and my closeness to God. And he did that with other men too. He, he was truly a good friend. Mm-hmm. And he still is, yeah. you know, him and his wife. In fact, I married him and his wife, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, interesting how he supplied to me the initial sparks of, of, a, of the next level of devout prayer. And I supplied for him the priestly blessing of blessing him and his wife. That is one. And what a wonderful story. He did give me his set of breveries when he left the seminary. So, Steve, yeah. I still pray with those. <laughs> he still lives on. He still lives on. So it seems like Steve really did help you take your prayer life to another level. Are there any other moments in, in your life where you can remember your prayer life going to another level? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so several come to mind. So um, I was talking to you earlier about um, confession, about liturgy, um, about the, the sense of the church becoming much bigger and me connected to it, especially in high school. I call this my first real confession. When I was a junior, I was about to be, about to be confirmed. And I went to confession. I know who the priest is. Um, he's still a priest in our diocese. And um, I went to confession with this priest. And, and in my heart, I knew that I had not vocalized and made available or talked about probably a couple sins of my life up to that point. Mm-hmm. And my whole conscience was being developed about these sins need touched and, and vocalized. And I remember painstakingly going through this confession. And this priest was so good. He was so gentle. He was so um, able to lead me in the direction of 
you know, what else do you think, you know, the, the Lord wants you to share that he wants to touch? And, and it was interesting that he, he used that phrase, the Lord will touch all of your sins. He, he can touch and, and heal everything. And, um, but that was my first real confession were sins that had been in my life and my growing awareness of them disrupting my love of the church and disrupting me and disrupting the people around me. I confess them. That was the first I called my real confession. Yeah, and I think that that it gives us a wonderful illustration of how a priest led you through that darkness and through that sins that you weren't even aware of, you know, and, and, and again, freed you. Yeah. Christ freed you in yeah. that sacrament. Yeah. He led me to not be afraid to say whatever I felt was in the way. Mm -hmm. There it is. Wonderful. You talked a little bit about Mary. I, I, I want to hear from you. So part of what I love to do with people is get them to experience this personal relationship with God, with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and, and the Blessed Mother. Yeah. Is Mary real to you? Yes. That's, that's an interesting question for me right now um, in, in, in several ways. The Blessed Mother has always been in my life. You know, my mom... My mom went through um, a divorce with my dad when I was young. And my mom cared for me in memorable ways mm. as a single parent. I saw my dad. It was, it was a good relationship, and, and, and I grew over time to see him more. But, but my mom memorably took care of me when I was younger. And so the image of being taken care of by mom mm -hmm. is in me. Mary was one who I prayed the rosary with or I prayed it because I believed that she wanted me to. And these were moments maybe going back to like with Steve where I was learning yeah, to put yeah. on devotional prayer. Mm -hmm. And I think those were good. And I believe like at that time I think that she she needed to be honored. She needed to be recognized. She needed to be shown thanks and gratitude. And, and the request that God made of her was one, I mean, uh, kind of naming the systematic things that she did or the practical things that she did of, of being willing to accept God's challenge of bearing his son. Mm -hmm. All those things were worth honor. But now things are different. Not that they've changed from that. I, I believe, you know, I believe all of these things. But now Mary is... And I want her to be more my spiritual mother and companion throughout the day. Mm. I made a Marian consecration about a year ago. So for people it, that may not know, there's a American Marian consecration that you can make called the Total Consecration to Mary by Louis de Montefort. And there's a, also yeah. 33 Days of Morning Glory. So yeah. tell us about this. Sure. A brief introduction. So Marian consecration has... Uh, actually been a long practice within the church, a devotion of, of offering my life, my works, um, the graces that God gives me to, to live out, offering all of these in return to the Blessed Mother um, because she has made herself a full sacrifice to God. I offer them to her, to the Father, but through her as the spouse of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
And this consecration oftentimes is preceded by days of, of prayer, oftentimes over a month. Um, and I followed Father Michael Gately's consecration to Mary. And, and I'll just be very candid. You know, I wanted to give myself over to Mary in a way where she had my whole body. Mm-hmm. She had my whole body physically. Mm-hmm. Where she could be an intercessor for me and my whole body. And she could be an intercessor for me as a priest. Where she would also walk with me as a priest. And she would be one who reminded me that I was a priest and I could live, I could live so little time not being connected to Jesus Christ and not being connected to God. Mm-hmm. So it's like inviting a near spouse into your life, as a priest especially, mm-hmm. when you ask Mary to be close. And I think many priests would say that, that Mary guards and protects our chastity. Yeah. Yeah, she does. Um, two thoughts, and this is going back to your original question of just how she's mm-hmm. played a role in my life. And again, there's stages here, right, Mike? So. So one of the stages that has happened in the last couple years is this openness to Marian consecration, going through that. The other thing that's happened is, is I have met some of the most profound women in my life over the last couple years' time. And um, I have met sisters from, religious sisters especially, uh, from Christ the Bridegroom Monastery, the Byzantine Monastery in the Eparchy of Parma. Um, I've met uh, the Mercedarian sisters from the the Diocese of Cleveland. They have convents around the U.S., but they have a fantastic group of postulants, novices, and sisters in Cleveland. Um, And I have worked with various religious women um, of whose personal stories I have gotten to know just because of the plain privilege that I've been the vocation director in the diocese. I've worked Mm -hmm. hand in hand. I mean, literally, I've had to listen to, work with, try to... All the different orders. Exactly, exactly. Um, And um, their experience to me their example to me and sharing their experiences with me. In fact, I was just telling Steve Flynn this earlier today. It's like having Mary incarnate Mm, in my life. And the Blessed Mother is the image of the church, right? Like the womb of the Blessed Mother is the church. This is where, this is where the church has grown and fed, you know, inside the womb of the Blessed Mother. And I look at these women or I look at women who are married, and I see Mary in, in all of them. It's just, it's evident. It's evident. Whether it's how they talk about being a spiritual mother, if they are a religious sister. How they talk about bearing fruit. You know, they, they would long to have a family, but, but those longings are just overwhelmed by the longing of wanting to be a maternal, spiritual figure mm-hmm. to many children. And I see Mary in them, and mm-hmm. them in Mary. And I see this image of the church alive and growing and feminine, you know, and very feminine. You know, that, that C.S. Lewis line, in God's eyes, we are all feminine. And in the respect that we all need to receive. We all need to have openness and willingness to receive. But women do it without trying. And I think they very much have received you. You have found a place you have allowed yourself to be mothered, as you said, incarnationally in the flesh by these women. So very much, it seems like that has enfleshed your 
notion of who Mary is. So one of the things that's happened, yes to all of that, one of the things that's happened is, is that my knowledge and my understanding, my wisdom has grown, right, through the Holy Spirit. And the Blessed Mother helping me to grow in the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the goodness of, of femininity. Um, but I look at, I believe that the Blessed Mother has, has impact and intercession over my whole body, my soul, my mind, mm. my physical body. And I find that in, in giving myself to her, I don't feel as if I'm able to be taken easily by anything in the world. Mm -hmm. If I've given and dedicated myself to her, then how can I let myself be taken? The other Nor thing, will she let you be taken. Yeah, I'm I sorry, go ahead. Now I believe that. The other thing is, is one of the fruits, obviously there's a, there's a fruit, there's a connection here with real, genuine women in my life. And I've had friends who have been women before. But again, this stage of God revealing his goodness in giving me these women friends in the last couple of years especially, um, God is incarnationally coming to me through the friendships of good women. Married, religious, mm -hmm. single, you know, and I'm able to be a priest and a man for them. And they want only the purest they want Mike without obstacle. And I want to give that freely to them mm -hmm. and not have anything in the way. So just the friendship of women and the women that I believe are connected to Mary in my life has brought about a really important desire for me to be a pure priestly sacrifice for them in my life. And that's a wonderful, I think, again, God blessed you with companions, maternal companions this time, you know, where Steve was a brotherly, a fraternal companion in yeah. the seminary. Yeah. Right now, at this moment, he's giving you these mother figures, both married, religious, and really helping you be what you're called to be and who you're called to be. So It's so wonderful. I haven't heard some of these stories and how God does work through people. His, his church you know he always people say why do I have to go to church I think you're helping us understand God works through people and especially through the people of his church mm -hmm. to bring us closer to him so you've talked about Mary tell, tell us about the Trinity about God the Father the Son the Holy Spirit yeah um, who do you pray to how do you relate to is God real to you okay on retreat with Monsignor John Essef about three years ago. And he was talking about the love that the Father has with him and how the Father is with him all the time. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, Monsignor, just describe that to me. And he said, Mike, and he holds his hand right over his head and he keeps making this gesture of as if there's a constant exchange mm -hmm. 
between the Father and Him. A constant presence, a constant voice, a constant exchange, a constant dialogue. You know, he just keeps kind of moving his, his hand over his head as if there's something being received all the time between Him and the Father. And he goes, the Father's right here. The Father's right here. Always. Always. Yeah. He's never not with me. And I began to, that cracked things open. I knew that God, you know, dwelled in me. I knew that he wanted to be within me. I knew that him and his son would want to make their place within me and, and to dine with me, you know, to use the, the lines from, from scripture. But it's like the words of Brother Lawrence, practicing the constant presence of God. And it's the fact that God is always here. God doesn't leave me when I drive down the road. God doesn't leave me when I feel like I'm against the wall and things are being asked of me. God doesn't leave me when I don't think I have anything to preach to on Sunday, you know, preach or offer on Sunday morning. God doesn't, God's there. God's accessible. God is always there. God can be worked with. Now, when I sin, I sin because I let that go. You forget he's there. I forget it. I forget it. Or forget to return. Or, or I yeah, you know, or I forget to return, or I think I try to minimalize that. I try to say that, uh, you know, God's not really there the way. You know, and I love that because it's a much different affective feeling than you know, some of some of the older generation, my father's generation, your father's generation, have this uh experience of God that he's always watching over you waiting for you to do something wrong and what you've just illustrated is is that God is this loving presence you know as Monsignor gestured and for me I thought of blessing always there mm -hmm. just blessing you loving you you can go to him for anything yeah you know you there's not a situation in your life that he's not right there ready to help you the Holy Spirit is very key for me yeah talk about the Holy Spirit okay, so that's a very elusive uh, I, I, I can talk about the Spirit for a long time. So, in short, the Spirit is the animator, the giver of life. I love that phrase, the giver of life. And life means many, many things. Whether you read St. Ignatius of Loyola, you read the saints, life means many, many things. We'll, we can get into that. But the Spirit animates me, grants me perseverance, literally doesn't just grant it to me, but but activates it within me. He activates fortitude within me. He activates the ability to confront a difficult temptation. He activates within me in that moment the ability to meet the next challenge. Mm. You know, and I have to accept it. I have to participate. But the Spirit's the giver of life. He animates. And I, I always think of this opposite image. If you go to Dante's Inferno, the lowest level of hell is the cavern of not fire, it's the cavern of ice. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the most original depictions of this from Dante's Inferno, it is not an inferno in the very bottom. It is a cavern of ice. And Satan is entrapped in this ice that he kind of constantly is beating with his wings, freezing it all over again, stuck, dejected, looking in on himself, just totally using, gnawing, taking advantage of the people that he's collected. And he's self-abusive and he's eating and fe feasting upon people that he's brought to himself. And he's wretched and he's paralyzed. He's paralyzed. And in that moment, 
after spiritually praying over that for a number of years, I realized that Satan wants ultimately paralysis. Mm. And the spirit oppositely must be the fullness of animation. Animation is different than paralysis. It's its opposite. And in that moment, the spirit is the animator. Anytime, and it's so subtle that we begin to slow down, that we begin to kind of let ourselves get um, tranquilized, you know, whether it's through sin or any occasion of sin or a, you know, the spirit is there to say, okay, let's get back. Mm -hmm. Let's express the strength. Let's express the wisdom. Let's go back to the memories of consolation. And that's another thing that the Spirit is. The, I mean, the Spirit is energy. I mean, literally, the Spirit is energizing, animating. So whatever gives us life and breath and fire and action like wind, that's why the Spirit is depicted as these things. Because we are going to move. We are going to be stronger. We are going to confront. We are going to step around. We are going to make the effort to go forward. Despite the fact of what Satan's paralysis is trying to make us do in the moment. The spirit is extremely key to me. And what's so evident as you're saying this is that the, the spirit is the operator. The Spirit's the one that initiates the movement in you, yeah. maybe without even realizing. You know, so as you're talking, I'm thinking about confirmation. Yeah. But, but these gifts that are in you, and the Spirit animates them. Without, without you maybe even knowing that you, you need it, or that you uh, are ready for it, it seems like you're describing that it, it, it just happens. Yeah, the, it, so there's two, two ways we can take that. One, I would be a really sorry self-operator. Mm -hmm. I mean, wouldn't all of us? I, I can't. I can't. I don't know what to do next sometimes. You know, so you, you know, come Holy Spirit. Mm. You know, come Holy Spirit. Come, you know, interrupt me right now. Actually, I think Jesus is the interrupter. But, you know, the Spirit is the, the Spirit is the one that now is going to use our humanity and enter our humanity in a unique way for this particular moment of time and space. Good. So you've talked about Mary, you've talked about the Father, you've talked yeah. about the Holy Spirit. Tell us about your experience in prayer with Jesus. I remember one day I was on retreat. And I began saying the Jesus prayer. I had always kind of felt a little bit out of sorts beginning a time of meditation or contemplation. So trying to move into that time, you know, of course, with, I think, a, a beginner's outlook of, well, how do I make this time right? How do I get into this mm -hmm. time right? Okay, like, you know, whether What's the Jesus prayer for so, Sure. So, so the Jesus prayer is, um, it is very old. It's an ancient prayer. It oftentimes follows the, the line that's taken from scripture between the penitent and the Pharisee, where the penitent is in the back of the synagogue beating his breast saying, um, Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mm -hmm. The Jesus prayer is, Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or Lord Jesus Christ, son of the most high God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or Lord Jesus. At any, at any pace, 
-hmm. you know, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me for I've just committed sin. Mm -hmm. Lord Jesus Christ, grant me the graces that I need for this particular moment. You know, so it can be adapted, but the original Jesus prayers, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And um, that prayer for me, it just came to me on retreat. Not that I didn't know it or I haven't heard it before, but it kind of inserted itself into my prayer in that mm -hmm, moment. Mm -hmm. That is the means to come to Jesus Christ directly and which begins or sometimes ends or redirects me during private prayer. That is the gateway for me, is the Jesus prayer. It doesn't matter where I'm at, if I'm outside praying in nature, if I'm at the chapel at the seminary, if I'm at a parish before I do a vocation weekend, I go right to the Jesus prayer. And does he come to you? It is, it is, it's, it's never just words. It's never just words. You know, oftentimes I will hold a crucifix. I carry a small Benedictine cross with me um, all the time. Sometimes I wear it, but most of the times I carry it so it's easily accessible in my pocket. But I use this so frequently when I pray the Jesus prayer or when I'm going into private prayer. So Jesus has brought me a very ancient, frequently honored prayer that collects me, centers me, disposes me, so that I can move into Lexio Divina. Mm -hmm. Um, Jesus is, is an interrupter. Yeah, when you say that, what does that mean? It has several different implications. For me, Jesus has been the one that has worked through other people to help me to think about priesthood and seminary. Jesus comes to me in the midst of, and has come to me before, like in the midst of temptations, or when I have sinned. Jesus interrupts if I've sinned, Jesus interrupts if I might be doing something on the way to sin. Jesus interrupts the good so that he can have the more, the magis. Jesus interrupts, you know, frequently. So, like, I'll be in the midst of doing something in the seminary, like in the vocation office, like I'm ready to make the next phone call, and bam, like, nope, daytime prayer is coming to mind. I, I mean... You know, and it's not just like daytime, this certain set of prayers in my breviary that I have to pray. No, like it's daytime prayer so I can be united and connected to Christ. Mm. You know, and I can pray for his church. You know, so these moments of invitation and interruption are how Jesus gets my gaze. And you mentioned, oh, that's beautiful, how he gets your gaze. Um, I think that's a beautiful personal real experience of Jesus is, is the gazing into his eyes, him gazing into yours and you gazing into him. Yeah. But you'd mentioned how, um, my favorite icon is the Pontecrater. Tell us what that is. Okay. So icons are, we call them windows to heaven. We call them living scripture. Um, they are from early in the church as well, but icons have been frequently used um, in all the sects of Catholicism, but they are frequently used in liturgy and in private prayer for Eastern Catholics. 
oftentimes for Latin Catholics too. Icons are specific moments of scripture or people of the faith, Christ, Mary, angels, um, different saints, and something is revealed within this icon um, about the Lord. So Pantocrator is like the, the omnipotent teacher, the great teacher, and he's holding a book of the Gospels in this one version of Jesus Christ, the, the Pantocrator that I really enjoy. It's my first icon I ever received. And he, he's looking, he's gazing at you. And no matter how you look at the mm -hmm. icon, he, yeah, he is nice. looking at you. And he's holding the book of Gospels, which is not only a sign of authority, but it is he is the holder of all truth, life, and freedom. And um, so the gaze of Jesus is, is really, it is key. It's key. It's also key, too, when I talk to guys about vocations, like priesthood, or women, too, when we talk about religious life. Because... You know, it's the gaze of Jesus that was evidently a part of all of his calling of the disciples. You know, he doesn't just go to Peter and Andrew and kind of, you know, looking around like kicking stones on the ground. It's like, I'd like you guys to drop your nets. Like, he's looking at them. He's like, drop your nets and follow after me. And that gaze has got to be a part of it. Um, but going back to Christ, the interrupter. You know, it's funny, Jesus reminds me more now to pray than when I was younger. Mm -hmm. It's like he wants me more, wants me more frequently. And you know, I mean, I, I still struggle with that. I mean, prayer for me, I like prayer. I like the idea of prayer, right? I can read on prayer, and I like reading on prayer. Um, I can hear other people's prayer, and I like hearing about other people's prayer. And I've read enough where I can have spiritual conversations with people, listening to them, giving some guidance. My struggle with Jesus Christ is, is that I oftentimes want to do things for mm -hmm. God. Right. And I haven't completely accepted the belief, at least in my action, that being with God is first and above everything. Yeah. And recently, so Jesus, the image of Jesus as the vine, is very key. Um, the image of Jesus who comes to his disciples and gives them the Holy Spirit and chases after them in the upper room and then chases after them again at the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus goes to ultimate lengths to chase after us. And that's what he's doing with me right now. He's chasing after me to say, look, Mike, kiddo, brother. <laughs> Just be with me. I'll make you, I'll make sure you get everything else done. Everything, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll make sure you get it all done, Mike. You know, I'll, and you know what? Guess what? There'll be some things that you don't. And you know what? I didn't need you to do those things anyway. Why you know, don't you trust me? Why don't you trust me, Mike? 
it reminds me of you know Martha and Mary and Martha who is busy about doing many yeah. things and Mary has yeah. as Jesus says as she sits at his feet and is just with him has chosen the better part it's it's wonderful yeah. to hear you talk about that struggle because I've seen it um, you, where you, you struggle with that being alone with him what advice would you give to somebody that does want to pray maybe even has some idea of how to pray but struggles with actually praying yeah this is, I almost feel like this is an Ignatian moment because Ignatius says within your own spiritual life it's good to imagine yourself giving counsel to a third party mm. Um, with discernment, but in this particular moment of prayer, I'd like to use the fewest amount of words as possible because I don't think that more words is going to help somebody. Just like with prayer, more knowledge about prayer, more methods of prayer doesn't make you a better prayer. So I think it's as simple as this. Trust that which you haven't trusted before. You've, maybe you've trusted your own mind. Maybe you've trusted your own ability to talk yourself in or out or through a situation. Maybe you're very reliant on your own logic. Maybe you rely whatever it may be. Don't rely on anything. Put your reliance out there in a way where it is extending you beyond yourself. And trust that God is there. It's not impersonal. It's a personal reliance. Mm -hmm. It's using different prayers, or it's moving through different prayers, maybe is the better way to say it. But place yourself with God. Let your heart rely. Let your mind rely. Rely on that which you haven't relied before. And prayer ultimately is an act of faith, trust, therefore reliance. And what happens is, is that God's ways are, God's ways of catching or meeting us or being with us oftentimes come um, not by relieving boredom or relieving the doubts that this time might be fruitless, because we have that sometimes. But it comes in the way that we approach whatever comes immediately after, who comes immediately after, or the ways in which we've approached that previously. God is now with us more, mm -hmm. where all things look differently, and we look differently in ourselves afterwards. But trust that which you haven't trusted before. As we come to the end of this interview, one of the things that I love to do is ask priests what advice they would give to somebody that wants to grow in prayer or feels stuck in prayer. Or, uh, but I think it would be neat to hear from you. What do you encourage guys to do specifically that are thinking about the priesthood? What mm -hmm. advice do you give to them to pray? One of the phrases I use, and it's, it's basically an Ignatian spinoff, is um, my role as a vocation director, my role as a priest and as a man, 
before I'm a vocation director. Um, but my role as a priest and as a vocation director is to help another towards clarity, confidence, and courage to act. Whatever it may be. If a guy's called to get married and, and not enter the seminary, fantastic. If there's clarity and confidence and courage to act, beautiful. Um, towards the seminary, wonderful. But just plain and simple, if a guy is not praying, then conversation with him, it, it's just going to feel aimless. Um, there's, no, there, there's no foundation, there's no rock there. You know, so, well, Father Mike, I haven't prayed in three months, you know, well, let's get you praying first. And, and let's get you, you know, making sure that maybe you're going to Mass, maybe you're not, you know. And what would that be when you say, let's yeah. get you praying? What does that look like? So oftentimes, uh, the most practical way that it sounds is, let's try and shoot for 10 to 15 minutes of silence a day, where you include some scripture. I might introduce them to praying like a pirate. I might introduce them to Lexio Divina. I oftentimes will give them a packet on prayer by a Jesuit priest that I use. Um, I will sometimes give them the book Time for God by Father Jacques Philippe. Um, I will point them. I actually have prayer cards of individual prayers for them. Mm -hmm. So prayer to know my vocation. I oftentimes will use Chardin's prayer of trust, of slow growth, that um, he wrote back in the early 1900s. So I have individual prayers for them. I have books to give them on prayer. So it's as simple as that. And now it's let's make the time. And then I oftentimes will say, if they are not meeting with their pastor, will they meet with their pastor and talk about prayer and manhood mm -hmm. and seminary stories? So the most fundamental ways that I can jumpstart a guy in his discernment is if he's not praying to give him practicals to help him and to point him towards the right people and to get them meeting with those people. And oftentimes a man is, if he's talking to me 90-some percent of the time, he's got a prayer life. Yeah. You know? Um, so it includes some practicals, it includes people, it includes resources. And it's just asking him to trust and have the intimate time that he needs. And then we talk about that pretty frequently when we get together. That's in fact my first, almost every time that's my first mm -hmm. question. When I meet with a guy individually, I'll spend four, five, six, ten hours individually with guys throughout the week sometimes. And my first question oftentimes is, so how's your prayer been since the last two, four, six weeks? And that's a good question that I think we'll leave our listeners with. How's mm -hmm. your prayer been? Thank you, Father Michael, for this time of um, just faith sharing with you. I got personally got to hear a lot of stories that I did not even know about. And it's been wonderful to, uh, to sit with you and, and to hear your, your personal relationship with Mary, with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and how you as a priest have genuinely grown in your prayer life. Thank you. And you want to give our listeners a blessing? Yeah, let us pray. Generous Father, who are always present with us, Lord Jesus Christ, who accompanies, guides, directs, speaks to us, Holy Spirit, who comes to animate, give life, the very invitation to act. We ask for your most special blessing upon all of those trying to grow in faith. We ask for your blessing upon those that are listening or those that are growing in their faith here locally within our diocese and church, for those that may be listening far. 
Through the intercession of our Blessed Mother, too, may we have perpetual help and victory through our Lord. May the blessing of the Most Holy Trinity be upon you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Once more, I want to thank Father Mike McCandless, who is the Vocation Director for the Diocese of Cleveland, for joining us today. I'm Father Michael Denk from the Diocese of Cleveland. This has been Praying with Priests, a series that we're doing for the prodigalfather.org.